It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Janice Dean. I'm David Asman. I'm Dana Perino, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, August 26th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden says federal student loan debt will be forgiven for millions of Americans. But is it fair to taxpayers? There were a lot of people saying, you know, don't go too small, do 50,000. And there were people saying, don't do anything. It's unfair to this generation. We speak with Biden administration economic advisor Jared Bernstein. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. One year ago today, as we were leaving Afghanistan, the first U.S. service members killed in the country in more than 18 months died in a suicide bombing at the international airport in Kabul. The attack killed many Afghan civilians as well. They were terrified about what life would be like under Taliban rule. Now, a year later, we returned to Afghanistan, and many of those fears became realities for those left behind. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The high cost of higher education has been a policy challenge for President Biden since taking office. He ran on reducing the price of a degree, proposing as part of his Build Back Better agenda, two years of tuition-free community college. That idea has stalled in Congress, but he did act this week on another campaign pledge, reducing student loan debt. And thanks to our historic deficit reduction, we can afford to cancel $10,000 in student debt and $20,000 if you're on a Pell Grant for tens of millions of Americans making under $125. This is a game changer. The debt relief program offers borrowers earning less than $125,000 a year up to $20,000 in debt forgiveness. The plan is not without its critics. Democrats and Republicans both have raised concerns about the cost, perhaps as much as $900 billion, and the fairness. Here's Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. I think it's a bad idea. Uh, An awful lot of Americans choose not to go to college. Uh, And then there are those Americans who borrowed money to pay for school and paid it back. In what way is it fair uh, to those taxpayers? So I I think fundamentally, uh, when we borrow money, we ought to pay it back. And I don't think the government ought to be uh, forgiving these student loans. There are questions about the legality of all of this and the impact to the national debts and to inflation. But we'll start at the beginning, how President Biden landed on this specific loan forgiveness plan. Really, this comes under the rubric of promises made, promises kept. And I think it's really as simple as that. Jared Bernstein is a member of the president's council of economic advisors. The complicated part was figuring out precisely what to do, how to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, As I think you and your listeners know, debt relief was only one of the announcements made. There's also a very important reform to something called income-driven repayment Mm -hmm. that makes that system much easier to use and much more beneficial 
to everybody else going forward. And that's really important because the debt relief is a one-time thing. So you also want to try to deal with future pressures of this sort. I think that's important. And I do want to talk a little bit about that. But, but as you point out, this sort of one-time debt relief still comes with a cost. And I know you guys are still trying to figure out exactly how much it will cost. Uh, people have to apply for this. You don't know what the response rate is going right. to be. Just because uh, it's a $10,000 benefit doesn't mean that's what everybody gets. I, I understand right. all of that. But I've seen the estimates, even the downward estimates, Jared, are $300, $400 billion. Doesn't that wipe out all of the deficit reduction from the Inflation Reduction Act? There's a couple of things that are missing. One is that the, the kind of numbers you're stressing tend to assume a very high take-up rate, maybe even 100%. Um, to be clear, we'd love to see a very high take-up rate. I was going to say, why wouldn't it be? Like, why, why yeah, wouldn't? No, <laughs> we'd love to see a very high take-up rate. But you ask a good question. There's one program, it's not very well known, where the education department really did everything it could to get people to take up a debt cancellation, and the take-up rate was around 30%. Now, I'm sure we're going to far surpass that. And yes, our goal is to get as high as we can. The other piece that a lot of people are missing is that don't forget that restart begins in January of next year. That was another announcement. So basically, the government was foregoing about $4 billion a month during the pause. That means we were collecting about $4 billion less per month because of the pause. Now, when you restart, that's actually going to be a bit lower because uh, of all the debt cancellation, but it will be a big positive as well. So you know, we're just not there yet in terms of netting all this out. I want to kind of dive into that because, you know, when we talk about cost in Washington, usually we're talking about how much the government is going to spend. This is not exactly that, right? This is money that impacts what the government otherwise would have collected. Yeah, that's a, an interesting point. I guess the point of that is, is the amount that the government collects is as important to deficit reduction as how much it spends. So if yeah, you are bringing all, down, all... how, so the government's going to collect a lot less money. Yeah, it all it all shows up in the scoring, although there are all kinds of nooks and crannies here that get kind of technical. I mentioned a couple of them. Take up rate, you have to factor in the restart. But yes, uh, this will be scored by official scorekeepers and we'll figure out precisely what kind of numbers we're talking about. I think that it's probably uh, very important at this point not to lose sight of the broader deficit story over our administration. So look, the deficit came down 350 billion in Biden's first year in office and is on track for a 1.7 trillion decline in his second year in office. Part of that, of course, is pandemic relief rolling off. Uh, but in fact, the increase in receipts coming into the treasury that's actually grown faster in percent terms than the spending has fallen. And that's just very much a result of the uh, strong economy and the tight labor market. So again, we have to do all of this on a net-net basis. And uh, these are fair questions that we just don't have uh, fulsome answers to yet. But a lot of the deficit reduction you're projecting would be eaten through this program. Nothing like what I was just talking about. I mean, you know, the, the 1.7 trillion is obviously, you know, far and above anything we're talking about in this. But the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's that's a good point. The Inflation Reduction Act is another 300 billion on top of the 1.7 trillion, but the, that, that's not in there. And yes, you know, when we when we get this score, we'll have to put the pluses and minuses together and see where that ends up. You know, look, I, if you're trying to get someone to say X is equal to Y, we just can't do it yet. <laughs> Okay. 
I want to talk. I, I know you know Jason Furman well. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you don't know him well. I, I, assume I know him very well. He's I, I assume you run in the same circles. It was well, presumptuous he's a very of me. good friend of mine. I, and I have a, so you, uh, I'm sure you've seen what he has said about this program, pouring roughly half a trillion dollars of gasoline on the inflationary fire that is already burning is reckless. He said about this student loan program. Why is your friend incorrect? Well, again, I think the... Uh, important thing there is partly to recognize that especially for next year when um when uh, the restart begins that the magnitude of the restart uh, that is the amount that the government collects because loan payments that have been on pause or restarting is in a similar ballpark to that of the forgiveness and if you line that up together you expect uh, inflation to be uh, negligible. Now, look, it's one thing for us to say that a report came out from Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Now, these are not particular, as I think Paul Krugman said on his website, I mean, on his Twitter feed, uh, they're not exactly known as socialists. The quote from them is that we expect the plan to have uh, the same direction and magnitude on inflation. Debt forgiveness that lowers monthly payments is slightly inflationary in isolation, but the resumption of payments is likely to more than offset this. So look, that's a big investment bank talking about this to their market uh, participants. And uh, that also squares with our analysis. So we'll see what Jason has to say about it. There is another uh, aspect of this, though, and uh, it's... Uh, you, you've seen this, I think, from Republicans and Democrats. I, I saw similar comments from like Tim Ryan, who talked about how much money this costs. Senator Mitch McConnell, a lot of Americans chose not to go to college. And then there are those Americans who borrowed money to pay for school, paid it back. Why is it now fair to those taxpayers? Why is it fair to taxpayers who did the right thing, right? They they went to school, they earned the degree, they took out the loans, they paid it back over maybe a decade, maybe two decades. And now they're sort of being asked to foot this bill. This is something that the president talked about in the campaign. And that, as I think you yourself said earlier, that you know he had lots of arguments with Democrats on the mm-hmm. other side of that equation. So there are a lot of people saying, you know, don't go too small, do 50,000. And there were people saying, don't do anything. It's unfair to this generation. And uh, I think what President Biden did is what he always does. He tells you what he's going to do. And kind of miraculously, given the partisanship that you and I have actually kind of been implicitly talking about, he then somehow figures out a way to do it. So I think he really threaded a needle here uh, to the uh, great benefit of uh, over 40 million people. Let's talk about the authority to do this. I I know you're not a member of the the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, What is your understanding of of how this holds up using this uh, post 9-11 law uh, that has some discretion for the education secretary? I would imagine the administration's preparing for some sort of legal challenge. One important piece that that gets to is that there are those who say you're doing this once, you're going to do this again, and you know people should be ready for for another round of this at some point. Not so, and not so for the reason that you just said, which is not uh, widely appreciated. I must say, Jared, you're very well informed about this stuff, which is that this is based on a very unique piece of legislation that grew out of the pandemic, a once in a hundred year pandemic. So uh, let's hope that we're not looking at anything like that again soon. Uh, But that is the uh, legal basis for what we're doing here. The other part of the debt cycle, Jared, is how expensive college has become. Mm -hmm. What tools are available from the executive branch, from Congress to try and get at that? Because this doesn't seem to disincentivize 
colleges and universities from from charging what they're charging, does it? No, I mean, I think the important thing there is to look at this other really important announcement that was uh, made, which is uh, a new income-driven repayment plan. There are a bunch of these plans, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It makes it pretty confusing. And the reason is, yeah. is because um, the Ed Department has, has a mandate to uh, provide these sort of plans. And so they sort of stack up one on top of each other. We think the one that was introduced is uh, uniquely strong in terms of helping to offset the cost of college. But that's you know on the consumer side. Um, it takes the payment uh, down from 10%. Oh, under these income repayment plans, you pay a percent of your income. So it's scary. if your income goes up, you pay more. If your income comes down, you pay less. And if your income is very low, you pay zero and you don't get penalized for it, nor under this new plan do you collect interest for it. And you pay 5% of your income under the new plan, not 10%. So cuts mm-hmm. that in half. So really, uh, a really great beneficial program. But you're talking about the other side, the college side. And well, look, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that that's what's driving the, the debt crisis. I mean, I think there are actually a number of things that are driving. That's one of the things I think we've also had a a real disinvestment in public universities. That's been very problematic. As state governments disinvest in their public universities, uh, they just shift those costs on, onto uh, consumers and students. And look, anyone who can hear my voice knows that the following is true. We tell every kid in this country to go to college, and then we make it way too hard for them to do so. And so I think what the president did, both with debt cancellation and with the income-based repayment, and also some other factors that get to what you're talking about now, some things that really hold, try to hold colleges' feet to the fire, those, uh, you know, if they're, if they're raising tuition and they don't have the kind of output to support that, uh, they're defrauding students or their their graduates don't end up with gainful employment, um, you know, we're going to call them out. And that's helpful. That's using the bully pulpit to uh, get these schools to deliver a, a much more honest and affordable product. Uh, but there is a role for Congress to play here. And nobody is saying that we're done with our work in this space. Jared Bernstein, appreciate the time, the explanation, a lot of nuance in, in what you guys are doing. And I'm glad we had a little bit of time to expand on on the headlines. Well, thank you, Jared. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Tommy Lahren with your Fox News commentary coming up. As we remember one year since we left Afghanistan, we mark this day in particular when a bombing at the Hamid Karzai airport not only killed 170 civilians, but 13 U.S. service members, 11 Marines, one Navy corpsman and one soldier. As we were ramping up our exit in August, Afghan civilians had rushed to the Hamid Karzai airport and they stayed there for days. One of the most remarkable visuals was watching some of them cling to the U.S. Air Force plane as it departed, gaining speed some ran alongside it. After that, U.S. officials urged people to stay away from the airport as concerns grew about possible terrorist attacks. And then it happened. August 26, 2021, an explosion killed dozens of civilians and 13 American service members. Listen, this is a devastating day, a devastating day uh, for our country, for the military, specifically, obviously, for those families. And and we hope the number does not continue to rise. But as Jennifer mentions, uh, it's likely to, uh, as the threat from attacks uh, is built up. Sometimes these attacks come in waves. 
Fox News anchor Brett Baer on that day noted the shock as the last U.S. service members to lose their lives in Afghanistan were killed in February the year before. President Biden said the attack would not slow our departure, but did say to the attacker and anyone else plotting to harm Americans. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. At first, it was believed there may be more than one attacker, maybe even suspects with guns who'd participated. That was not the case. It was one suicide bomber with one device. According to Army officials, the explosive was filled with ball bearings, which created wounds that looked like they'd been caused by gunshots. We first arrived in Afghanistan on the 22nd of August 2021, and evacuations were underway at this time. Fox News foreign correspondent Trey Yinkst was in Afghanistan as we pulled out, and he went back one year later. The Qataris were using military planes to take Afghan civilians and those trying to flee the Taliban out of the country. And it was very chaotic at the airport then, and we were the first international crew to report live from the airport. When the explosion took place, we were in Doha, Qatar, and went back afterwards, and we saw the aftermath of the explosion in early September. But to give you a sense of just what things were like at that time at the airport, there was a sense of chaos. There were yeah. thousands of Afghans making their way to Mohammed Karzai International Airport, and no one knew if they could actually get out of the country. We all remember those mm-hmm. traumatic images of Afghan civilians clinging to the outside of U.S. military planes because they were terrified about what life would be like under Taliban rule. Now, a year later, we returned to Afghanistan And many of those fears became realities for those left behind. Trey, it was we're going to talk more about what you've you've seen, you know, now that you're there again. Um, But it was initially very confusing. Right. We found out six months after the explosion um, that it had been caused by a lone wolf. ISIS-K identified him as Abdul Rahman al-Logani, a militant who had been freed from one of the prisons by the Taliban. Um, And he'd apparently plotted a bombing in India before. He was known to U.S. intelligence. Uh, Army officials said later on that this was not preventable, this this attack. But I just want your thoughts about if you think that's entirely true. And maybe it's unfair to ask, but. We were the ones leaving. The Taliban had taken over. Thousands of people, as you noted, packed into the airport, desperate to leave. We created a situation in which there was a large crowd in an open space, and the Taliban was now in charge. Yeah, looking back, there has been a lot of analysis on what went wrong that day at Abbey Gate in Kabul. And the reality is that it was such a messy situation it was hard to tell where threats were coming from. And remember at the time, the US pulled out of Afghanistan so quickly that they left behind not only military equipment, but also thousands of prisoners, many of whom are terrorists. And some of them were able to escape with the help of the Taliban and were roaming freely at this time. And it is the understanding of American officials that this individual was previously imprisoned in Afghanistan. And so not only groups like the Taliban, but you had even more extreme organizations like ISIS-K, the group responsible for this airport bombing, and also Al-Qaeda, who now had operatives freely roaming the streets of Kabul. And so it was something that we also explored when we went back this time, when we returned to Kabul, how much these organizations are able to operate in Afghanistan. And the Taliban says they are under control, but that day, 
that this happened, the outer perimeter of the airport was basically under Taliban security. And then when individuals were able to make it to the inner part of the airport where Abbey Gate actually enters Kabul's international airport, that's where you had these British and American troops lined up trying to help process in some sort of order the chaotic situation. And that is what happened at the time. This suicide bomber entered this crowd of people in a trench that was just outside of Abbey Gate and detonated his device, killing an estimated 170 Afghan civilians and 13 American service members. Trey, we officially left, I think, like three days after that. Since you've been back, do you feel like there are additional, like, bitter feelings? I mean, after after we left, right, the U.S., or, you know, after that bombing at the airport, we, the U.S. carried out that drone strike that killed those children. I understand the family's still not been entirely relocated, and they were promised that. But what is your feeling now as you talk to Afghan civilians about our, our departure and what the last year's been like? Well, you mentioned this family that had so many young children killed in a U.S. drone strike, a mistaken drone strike. The Americans thought they were targeting an ISIS-K operative, but actually it was a driver for a nonprofit and his family and, and close relatives. We went to that house shortly after the strike took place that following month and talked with the family and the wreckage and aftermath of this Hellfire missile was still in the courtyard. You could still smell the, the burning metal. And we sat with this family and asked them how they planned to move forward. And they had a lot of requests of the Americans at the time. Some of those family members have been relocated to the United States. Others are still in Afghanistan. And their entire life was changed in a moment. And I think that their plea for, for help is not unique. While their situation was unique in, in this tragic scenario that unfolded in, in Kabul in the days after this bombing took place, there are so many Afghans still in Kabul and across the country who are looking to get out for other circumstances, for other reasons. We talked with one man who previously worked at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, and he said he had applied for a special immigrant visa months ago. He has young children. He has a wife. He was not sort of a random person as it relates to the United States. He had a specific role helping the Americans on the ground in Afghanistan. He had traveled to the United States, and he still has not been approved for his special immigrant visa. Mm -hmm. And his case is not unique. Um, you, your reporting has been, at this one-year marker, <laughs> kind of insane to watch. I mean, the Taliban's giving you this incredible amount of access, and the country's on the brink of starvation. I mean, we have U.S. officials and international officials saying it's dire. And our own State Department and others in the Biden administration are saying we can't really help much. If we unfreeze these central bank funds and get it to the people, we wouldn't even really know what to give it to. There's no, like, third party. Um, it, it could end up in the hands of the Taliban. Is it your sense that the Taliban is aware of how dire the humanitarian situation is, that their own people are starving? I think they understand, and they also understand the leverage that gives them in the international community. Uh. As you pointed out, we had pretty unprecedented access to Taliban-controlled Afghanistan a year after the group took control of the country. And we went back to a malnutrition ward that uh. we had 
visited previously, yeah. and the situation there is so bad that it's almost hard to put into words. I think even our report didn't do it justice. I mean, we, we gave the numbers of more than a million young Afghans under five years old who are on the brink of starvation. We spoke with a mother who had already lost three children yeah. to malnutrition, but yet still it feels like our efforts in reporting, at least personally, it feels like it's not enough because it's not just in Kabul, it's, it's all around the country. And as you've noted, there's so much money from the international community that's not making its way into Afghanistan. Now, it's important to note a lot of U.S. aid is still going into the country, but it's just not enough. I mean, the problem is getting worse and worse. The Taliban is increasingly isolated by the international community because of the way they treat women, because of the way they run their society. And it's a problem that has no solution. And so there's this calculation going on right now in the international community. How do you help the Afghan people without bolstering Taliban rule? But the Taliban is in control of this country of nearly 40 million people. And while they rule through this strict interpretation of Islamic law, they rule. And that is the yeah. bottom line. They are in control of the country. And like it or not, this is the future of Afghanistan, at least in the short term. And this decision will have to be made by people uh, much higher than than the reporters who go there to to report on what's happening but it is a a decision that shouldn't be taken lightly but also should not be ignored and i think that's the biggest risk for right right now for afghanistan the biggest risk for afghanistan is that people will start to ignore this story and forget about these innocent civilians who are literally starving under taliban rule yeah, it's, it's pretty simple, actually, right? You either give millions of dollars to the Taliban and hope that the people get fed, or you watch possibly millions starve. I mean, it's it really just, that's what it comes down to. You just have to make some sort of moral calculation. Um, I, I'm the mother of two toddlers, so your reporting, I will tell you, was enough. Um, I lost it, uh, especially that woman who said that she'd already lost multiple children. When you talk to them, uh, do they blame us? Some of them do. You know, I think it's something that gets lost in our reporting sometimes, but it's an important note. Not all Afghans were supportive of the American invasion. Many of them were not and still are not. It was a very bloody and challenging time period for the country. But with that said, they understand the value that American aid has in this country. And so... When you ask a political question to these young mothers from places like Logar province or Helmand province, they really don't have much to say about American politics or the decisions made under previous administrations. They're so focused on feeding their children and their ability simply to survive. Yeah. One mother that we met there in this malnutrition ward is 16 years old. and. She told us that she lost her first child three years ago. Oh. So we're talking about girls, like teenage girls who are mothers in Afghanistan in rural parts of the country. And in more rural parts of Afghanistan, there is simply no place to even find food, let alone if you can afford it. At least in Kabul, you see food in the streets. There are vendors out selling food. The problem is most people can't afford to buy that food. Trey Yinks, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Who is America's favorite pet? Online voting will determine the ultimate winner of the title, but so far, an emotional support alligator from York, Pennsylvania is in the lead. Yes, you heard me correctly. An emotional support alligator. His name is Wally Gator. He's seven years old, and he has a TikTok following at Wally the Alligator of more than 68,000 people. Wally Gator also reportedly loves to give hugs, and his bio says his owners operate a reptile rescue. He's just one of the pets in the contest. There's also a chinchilla named Churro, a rescue dog named Hank, and a tamed wild Mustang named Sundance Sunny Kid. The winner gets a $10,000 prize and a two-page feature in InTouch magazine. Check out americasfavepet.com for more information. As for Wally, he seems unfazed by all the internet attention, content to go on walks on a leash and swim with humans, and chomp on his favorite treats raw chicken, and cheese puff corn. According to Wally's America's Favorite Pet Profile, he's been offering emotional support to one of his owners who was diagnosed with cancer. But for all Wally Gator's good qualities, he does have one quirk. His owner says Wally likes to climb into his bed and steal the covers. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. Hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it. On demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tom What's on your mind? Apparently, the younger generation is trying out a new fad called quiet quitting in which they put in less effort at work and do only the bare minimum. Call me an old-fashioned millennial, but in my generation, we just call that being lazy as heck. But this quiet quitting trend is backed by Gallup research that suggests in the first quarter of 2022, only 31% of Gen Z workers felt engaged at work. And though most rational folks would recognize this as problematic, some of the quiet quitters refer to it as working smarter, not harder. What happened to the work ethic in this country? Fewer and fewer workers in any age bracket are stepping up or taking initiative. If this entitlement era doesn't end and ends soon, our future workforce is doomed. Enough with the cute names like quiet quitting. Call it what it is, laziness, and cut it out. I'm Tommy Lahren, and you can listen to all of my hot takes at foxnewscommentary.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.